Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights, show number 59. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment. Get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. Log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa for details. Yes, it is show fifty nine, and as as usual, a boom show, a fun packed medley of things put together by my good self, Mister Tony C. Smith. First off, we have a very small editorial by my good self. Another poem by G. O. Clark. We have a little bit of flash fiction, none other than Church H. Tucker. Look out for that. We've got our film talk by Rod coming up later on. Main fiction is all to do with Poe and his birthday coming up. We've got a great story by Gregory Frost. Little introduction by Gregory Frost as well, so look out for that. New titles, got a few new titles popping around the door. And we have the very final third section or third part of Temptation by David Brin. So do stick around. I hope you enjoy the show. So first off, let me just say a big thank you to Amy H. Sturgis, who took over the controls of the Starship Sofa and steered her <laughs> damn side better than what I did. I might have been at the dentist or off somewhere when Amy had to step in and take over, and it was fantastic. And it was it's such a good idea of doing that because it's such a good a good link to run into this the main fiction idea the short story by gregory frost you know it all kind of fits together and i think it's next saturday when it's his birthday is it the 17th of january 200 years he would have been born so i'm not too sure but it's somewhere around there so amy thank you so much for that and i'm sure i'll be hitting amy for maybe a hp lovecraft <laughs> further on down the line <laughs> Oh, why not? So, Amy, thank you so much. So, the editorial idea is basically, it's just 
I've entitled it Passions, and it's just really, I'm more interested to know, like, other people's passions. You know, we've all got this kind of passion for science fiction and this love for science fiction, but I seem to go through quite a lot of passions or hobbies, you know, and it'd be just nice to know if how other people, you know, by all means, email me in, tell me, you know, what other kind of things that tickle you in your pastime. With me, it's, I, I seem to go through, like, phases of everything, and some things recirculating and, and regenerating and I kind of get in a good kick out of them again for some reason now I've well I was still into kind of fresh coffee I don't know if anybody knows but I've got myself this kind of nice grinder and I've been grinding my own coffees and I actually come a bit of a kind of a brick wall with the coffee because I found this coffee that was lovely tasting and it was just from the local supermarket this, this certain type of bean in a way, it's kind of knocked what I was going to do on my project for coffee, but I'm still enjoying, you know, getting coffees, and i got a load of coffees for Christmas, so our coffee bean, should I say, so that's one of my passions, is grinding coffee and actually making coffee to the best I can get it, the best quality or the best way, do you know what I mean? And it, it's one of those things with coffee is, once you kind of get into it, you know, how deep is the hole, how deep do you want to start going into it, you know, you, you start timing certain things on certain methods you do you know to get this perfect cup of coffee so is anybody else in the coffee you know and other like hobbies what other passions grab you because i think with this kind of the last couple of i'd say the editorials that have been not, not a little bit doom and gloom but they haven't been kind of on the bright side of thing and i just thought what does everyone get a kick out of you know out there and with me of late, it's actually been another kind of beverage, real beer, or should I say real ale. And maybe I might go down this way, I might not yet, but at the moment it's just kind of the, the going and, and buying, like you say, a few bottles of real ale from the supermarket or from, like say, a little brewery or going to a pub that's got its own microbrewery in where they actually brew, the, you know, they get the hops and the, the barley and it's all made together and it's made actually on site. So and it's got they've got some great titles, you know, like Thirsty Ferret, Hen's Tooth, Fiddler's Elbow, you know, it's just like and I don't know if this, this is goes on in America as well, you know, do you go into a pub and say, Can I have two pints of Fiddler's Elbow and a pint of Hobgoblin, please? But you know what I mean? And they're all there. there's so many different names, and that's what's getting me as well. I just had one the other day called Snacklifter, and it's by a company Jennings Beer. Search on online Jennings Beer. Snacklifter tasted bloody horrible. <laughs> it was like drinking marmite. It was a bit too strong and a bit too kind of stouty for me. But there's one out there that I really like, which is called Roaring Meg. Have a look for that. Google that. Roaring Meg Real Ale Beer. Or I think it might be a pale ale, that. And have a look on websites. Have a look for the Jarrow Brewery. There's, he's got two pubs. He's got the Robin Hood. And he's got a pub called The Maltons. And I was in there the other day in the Jarrah. I was in both of them the same night, did a tour. And we were trying all sorts out. I think there was one called Old Cornelius, which again was a little bit more mighty for me. There was a Rivet as Rivet someone was actually the nicest one. That one I really did like. And then we were on to Jarrah Bitter, which was like a, a, another one of their own brews. So what else tickles you? Do you know what I mean? Is it just science fiction for you? Or do you have like your horizons out there expanded a little bit more? What I would like to get into, which actually is far too dear for us, would be 
I've always had like kind of fish and we've always had like kind of little fish tanks and fish tanks and that. But I've never kept marine fish and I've often thought I would like that. But Mrs. Starship's always not too keen on Chunkier getting another fish tank. So for the moment, that one's just like a kind of on the back burner. You know what I mean? It's one of those things where I'll just wear her down, you know? Melanie, look at that one. What do you think of that one? So, yes. So, please tell us all your other passions, you know what I mean? Because I know so many people now through the Starship Sova, but it's just, you know, and we just normally talk science fiction, which is great. And, you know, send an email in. Tell us what else you're into. You know, if you've emailed us before, we've, we've chatted on. Tell us what else you get a kick out of. Do you know what I mean? Is it just reading? Is it just science fiction? Or is there other things there? So what is your passions? You've heard a few of mine. Obviously, yes, tea. You know, they're all kind of consumables here. Tea, or not tea. Actually, tea as well. Do you know what I mean? I'm quite partial to different teas. But definitely coffee and definitely real ale. And I'm actually going to do a sanatorium show one day soon about me real oh, the bottles I've got left because they're actually they're going down I've got a load for Christmas but they're slowly starting to go down so the quicker I do a real ale special the better I think I'll be not be able to do any more so do drop me an email starshipsover at gmail.com pop over the forums and leave it there get a little thread going over there passions apart from science fiction <laughs> So I think we'll go straight over to a little bit of poetry from G.O. Clark. As if we could change anything by G.O. Clark. As if Godzilla could stop his fire-breathing Tokyo rampage. As if King Kong could break the spell that docile young beauty cast. As if Count Dracula could quench his thirst for the blood of innocence. As if Frankenstein could find a happy balance between the sum of his parts as if the living dead could stop for a minute and think about what they were doing, as if Hannibal Lecter could put away his silver carving set and become a vegetarian, as if we could run the film backwards and reverse the consequences of our nightmares. There you go. Gary, thank you so much. And Julie Davis again, thank you. So today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the leading provider in spoken word entertainment. Audible has over, get this, 35,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded and played back anywhere, just like Starship Sofa. Log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. Again, go to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa for your free audiobook. And that's exactly what I did for, if you remember myself and the good Fred Maestro, are actually tackling Hyperion and the fall of Hyperion. And when we decided, I actually had a copy of Hyperion in audio, and most people know now that kind of, I try and, my natural way to go through a book now is through the audio way. So I had Hyperion, and it was an old copy of this audio version I had, and I I found out through getting emails off Audible that they actually had a new a new Hyperion, a new fall of Hyperion come through. It actually came out on the 23rd of December. So I tooled over there, got myself the two books, and if you're not listening with me and Fred, please kind of 
join in because, and you know, you pop up there, you can get your free one through Audible at the minute. It is fantastic. And I am very much keen on Hyperion. So there you go. Check out Hyperion and the fall of Hyperion in audible.com. So Flash Fiction today comes from Church Tucker. I sent Church an email just to get a little bio off him. <laughs> so it was only a few lines that I got back from Church, but it was a great little email. He goes, ah, I hate when you ask me that. My bio is pants. I'm just a cowboy, fireman and astronaut who occasionally writes fanciful stories. There you go. So that's all we know about Church H. Tucker, but he's an active member on the forum. So Paul will then say hello and nice story, bad story. It is narrated by Church's friend Z who is actually a writer and podcaster for the Weird Geek Dad podcast. You can find that at blog.weird.com slash geekdad. And he actually does his own, Church says, nerd music site, Hipster Please, and you can find that at hipsterplease.com. So without further ado, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... Jonathan by Church H. Tucker. It took a couple of seconds to upload the file. It took another couple to close the series of accounts that masked the computer Jonathan was actually using. He glanced up and saw Dr. Reyes making her way back to her office. He shut down her terminal and swept his keys and his data fob into his coat. Jonathan knew that uploading from work was considered risky, but the hospital was a big place with thousands of employees and about as many IP addresses. As he dropped off his paperwork at the nurse's station, he smiled at the thought of spoofing the IP address of their printer. He was startled to see a nurse smiling quizzically back at him, and he hurried along. Personal interaction was part of his job that he didn't like. Fortunately, there wasn't much of it. Barring the occasional staff meeting and the professional interaction with doctors and nurses, he was pretty much on his own. It was the kind of job that Jonathan was born for. It didn't hurt that it paid rather well. Back in his office, he logged into another account to see if there was any reaction to his last upload. It was early yet, but there was already a flurry of posts that he had uploaded something. Jonathan had to smile at the thought that being the first to post that a new file was up was, in itself, worth something. He, or rather his online alias, had built up a sizable reputation among the file-sharing community. And that, of course, is why he did it. For the goodwill of fellow music fans. To see his taste in music confirmed by like-minded folk. That was worth hiding music data in image and text files and trying to sneak it past the government-mandated RIAA packet sniffers that attempted to block all music transfers. Sure, there was the predictable cranking about sound quality and even music quality. The greater internet fuckwad theory still held true, but Jonathan didn't care. People may be bigger asses online, but they're also much easier to ignore. The problem with Meatspace is that it's so insistent. His smile dropped when he remembered that he'd forgot to wipe the shell history of Dr. Reyes's computer. A tiny thing, to be sure, but a careless thing. His mind raced. Had he been careless about anything else? He shook his head and settled back into his work. He had wiped the history the next time Reyes took lunch. It was a momentary lapse. Nothing more. The fact that he remembered it was a good thing. Ten minutes later, the phone rang and he picked it up. Radiology, he said, automatically. After a second, he slammed the phone back down. He sat staring at it for a moment. 
he had been careless about something. His heart raced as he left his office. Wiping his hands on his coat, he thought furiously. What could he do? Could he just leave? Walk out the front door and never return? When he got to the lobby, his knees went weak. The group of people talking to security looked up at him and recognition was in their eyes. Jonathan stared back with resignation in his. It was over. They had found him. His fans had found him. There you go, Church, thank you so much. And Z, thank you, sir, too. Don't forget, copyright is Mr. Church took us. So we're going to jump straight in now to the movie talk by Rob. Rob, sir, I hope you had a fantastic Christmas and New Year. What have you got, Squire? Hello, everybody. I'm a huge fan of films from the golden age of Hollywood, especially the black and white ones. Now, I realize this puts me into a small percentage of the movie-watching public, but I'm not too worried about that. I could lie to you and say I think that this love of older movies is because they're almost always better. You know, better written, better acted, better directed, just better produced in general. But no, I'm not that kind of film lover. I've never been very good at the film snob thing. I just don't watch movies with rose-colored glasses tinting those aging shades of gray into classic cinema regardless of the actual qualities on display. A bad film is a bad film, no matter when it was made. So, nostalgia is not the primary reason I love old movies, although it can certainly play a part. I just love a good story, well told. That's all I really need from a movie. But these days, there's a mindset in Hollywood that seems to say that it is necessary to remake every single film that has ever been financially successful. It doesn't matter if there's a good reason to do it, or it's done because bankers run the studios, and anything creative scares the hell out of them. Give them a property, or that is all a film project is to these folks, that they remember from their childhood, because name recognition is the only marketing strategy they really understand, and they are thrilled to throw money at the idea. So, of course, remakes of old movies and TV series have become the standard for what gets produced in Hollywood. It is sad, and it is pathetic, but it is what it is. Well, let me step down off my soapbox and calm down for a second, and I'll move on to something else. Now, okay, after all that hot air, I should uh, come clean and say that, really, as far as remakes go, I'm not completely against the idea. I think that some films can be remade and made perhaps a bit better than the original attempt. The fact that there were two adaptations of The Maltese Falcon before John Huston made a classic movie from the novel shows this concept clearly. But in that example, you can see the outline of my thoughts on this subject. I have no problem with filmmakers taking another stab at an adaptation of a novel or a short story if they feel that they can make a good movie out of the source material. Hell, I'm glad that there have been three tries at adapting Richard Matheson's brilliant novel I Am Legend to the screen, and I like each one, for various different reasons. And I'm a happy little sci-fi geek every time they take a new charge at Jack Finney's The Body Snatcher's Tale, even if the most recent attempt, entitled simply The Invasion, was a limp waste of time. I look forward to another group of folks trying these classic stories again in the future. In a way, it's like seeing a theater troupe stage a venerable play. How are they going to change things, and in what way will they present the text? It can be fun, and most importantly, it can be very entertaining. So, 
we come to the day the Earth stood still. When this remake was announced, I was concerned because I had forgotten something. The original film was based on a short story. That had slipped my mind. The story was published in 1930, called Farewell to the Master and written by Harry Bates. It's a darn good science fiction tale, and I was pretty surprised by the changes made in the first film version when I got around to reading the story. This short story takes place in an unspecified future, not too different from the 20th century. The main character is a photojournalist named Chris Sutherland who relates how, four months previous, an object appeared in Washington, D.C., and from its interior came two beings. One was an eight-foot-tall metal robot, and the other a man named Klaatu. This is where the first film, the 1951 one, departs from the tale for the first time in several ways. First, the name of the robot in the short story is Gnut, spelled G-U, I'm sorry, G-N-U-T, uh, but of course it was changed to Gort in the film. Now, I guess having someone say something that would have to be pronounced ending in Nut was deemed pretty silly, and I guess I'd have to agree, I don't think it would have really flown on screen in 1951 at all. Also, the robot is made of greenish metal in the story, as is the, the ship or the object that they both come out of. And it looks like a large man, not the featureless automaton of the movie. Minutes after coming out and speaking to the gathered crowd, Klaatu is shot down, as in the film, but here it isn't a trigger-happy soldier, but a raving religious fanatic babbling about the visitors being sent by Satan. Now you just know that wasn't going to make it past the Hayes Code in 1951. And to even further bend the brain of anyone who has seen the film, Klaatu dies. Actually dies. And he's buried by the horrified people of Earth who fear possible retribution from either the big metal robot thing or from whoever or wherever the aliens came from. Now, Gnut, which I have trouble saying without laughing, remains motionless and silent after Klaatu's death. And in the intervening time, laboratories and a museum are built around the metal creature and the ship. Both objects prove impervious to the investigations of the human scientists, but on a visit to the museum, Sutherland notices that the robot's foot has moved from where it was just days earlier, and he makes plans to watch the robot that night after everyone is gone. Now, the story continues on from there in a very satisfactory and even touching way, and could actually provide some of the explosions and action you would expect from a 21st century sci-fi film. So I wasn't too surprised when this became remake fodder, but would the filmmakers go back to the written word or look to the first film for its inspiration? Now, I should state for the record that I think the 1951 film is a great movie and a true classic. So, as open-minded as I am about remakes, this was going to be a tough sale. I love science fiction, so of course, I was in the theater seat the weekend it opened. And I have some interesting news. I caught the film with some friends, and although we were all hoping for the best, I really feared it would be a disaster. I worried that it was going to be turned into a big Hollywood action film masquerading as a sci-fi movie, all about the cool explosions and the supposedly witty one-liners tossed out by heroic men shooting guns. E.T. Go home. You, uh, you get the idea. But a strange thing seems to have happened on the way to remaking The Day the Earth Stood Still. They somehow decided to make a serious, downbeat, 
and carefully paced film. Now, it's not wholly successful, but, uh, wow, it is well done. Now, I realize that the fact that I liked this film puts me in the minority of filmgoers. Just a glance around the internet at reviews show that this sucker has been jumped on with both feet by nearly everyone in the world. The standard take on the film seems to be that it's a terrible crock of junk and at its worst is awful and laughable. I find most of these reviews to be insulting, not just to the film, but to science fiction in general, as they tend to come from the stance that says fantastic film is a silly thing to begin with, so how can this stuff be taken seriously by anyone? But then, the genre has always been looked down on as kid stuff or junk food for the mind, so that doesn't really shock me. All I can say is that these reviewers either saw a different film than I did, or are some cold-hearted people. I found this remake to be a well-made movie, taking the central idea of the original story and updating it to focus on what we now know about the dangerous effects of how we treat the planet we live on. The opening credits identify the source for this script as the screenplay for the 1951 movie, but I did note a few things from the short story creeping in. Naturally, the details of the 2008 film are new. Now, the 1951 version had Klaatu coming to Earth to lecture us about the dangers of our infant nuclear capabilities. This Klaatu is here to tell us that we must change how we live or the planet will die. It is this idea that we are on the tipping point of forever altering the biosphere for the worse that turns out to be the problem. Well, that and the fact that the alien decided that we're too stubborn to change our ways. As in the earlier film, it's Klaatu's experiences of humans that in the end cause him to change his mind. In a series of very well-played scenes with John Cleese as a Nobel Prize-winning scientist and Jennifer Connelly as a widowed mother struggling with her son, he sees the good our species is capable of. It never becomes the sappy romantic thing I feared it would. It's much smarter than that. It shows how the love and self-sacrifice of humans points them, eventually, toward making the right choices. I won't go into the details of what happens in the movie because I think part of the joy of this thing is seeing how they do what they do. But allow me to encourage you to see this one. Seriously. Check your expectations at the door. Try to watch it with an open mind. It's not as wonderful as the black and white original, but it's a good film on its own. And in a world in which remakes are usually empty-headed exercises in simplistic stupidity, that is a big welcome surprise. And for me personally, as someone who loves the older Hollywood films, science fiction, as well as every other type you can think of, this type of film that isn't a giant explosions-filled, stupid thing. It's not just a surprise, but in a way, in just a small way maybe, it harkens back to some of the things that I like about more thoughtful science fiction. It's not perfect, and it's really not the best film I've ever seen, but it is a solid movie, and that's a lot more credit than this film is being given from any other reviewers that I'm seeing around the web, or anywhere else for that matter. And nobody is more surprised about this than me. Thanks for listening, and uh, I'll be back in a month or so with another film review. Probably not another remake, though. The chances of another good one this soon after this film are pretty slim. There you go. It's funny, I've listened, I've seen a few reviews of that, so 
this one is quite a nice one. Rod, book me a seat. I'm going to see that film. <laughs> Thank you so much, Rod. Do, do listen now for another film talk by Rod coming soon. So we come on to the main fiction of the night, and it's to coincide with Edgar Allan Poe's birthday, or 200 years born on, the, I think it's the 17th, as I say, of January. Give you a little heads up on Gregory Frost. Born 1951, he is an American author of science fiction and fantasy, and directs fiction a fiction writing workshop at the Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania. He has received a bachelor's degree from the University of Iowa. Mr. Frost is a graduate of the Clarion Workshop, and he has actually been invited back as an instructor several times including the first session following the move to the University of California in 2007. He's also done research for television shows and acted in a couple of independent horror movies. His initial vocation was as an artist. And actually, Gregory Foster has done a little intro as well into this short story. So I'm going to hand you straight over to Gregory Frost. Hello, this is Gregory Frost, author of the duology Shadowbridge and Lord Tophet, the historical thriller Fitcher's Brides, and numerous other novels and short stories. The piece I'm about to read to you was my first published story. It appeared in the Twilight Zone magazine, edited by T.E.D. Klein, and has been collected in Attack of the Jazz Giants and other stories from Golden Griffin Press. I elected to read this particular story as a kind of commemorative of the 200th anniversary of the birth of Edgar Allan Poe. My story, in the Sunken Museum, deals with the unsolved mystery that surrounds Poe's death. How he got on a train for Philadelphia, but ended up in Baltimore. Days later, delusional and near death. I also have a new story in Ellen Datlow's anthology, Poe, 19 New Tales Inspired by Edgar Allan Poe, which is out this month from Solaris Books. Meantime, I hope you'll enjoy In the Sunken Museum, and thanks for listening. In the Sunken Museum. Yet his stories contain no mystery greater than the one surrounding his untimely death. The fact that he took with him his host's walking stick rather than his own, and that he got on the wrong train for Philadelphia but arrived in Baltimore. These suggest that he was ill or feverish. But even a protracted attack of his disabling headaches does not account for the missing five days before he was discovered on the streets of Baltimore. Nor is there any solution to the puzzle of the name he cried out as he died, a name with no known reference in his life. There can be no doubt that the occurrences which befell Edgar Poe during the few days prior to his death will never be known to us. Stephen Wieralski, The Gallows Poe. His eyes open slowly to total darkness. The lids are swollen from fatigue and from a feverous illness that threatens to consume him. Behind his left eyeball is a headache he has endured for weeks. Where is this? It cannot be the train to Philadelphia. There is no motion, no noise. Have we stopped? But there is no light. It's like a tomb. The terror of premature interment has haunted him throughout his life. He feels the tickle of sweat on his mustache, attempts to brush it away. But his arms are numb as though he had slept on them. 
Panic spins in his head, shreds his thoughts. He would kick and claw out of this blackness. If only he could move his arms and legs. But paralyzed, he's incapable of exploiting the surge of adrenaline. The itch of the sweat on his lip is driving him mad. He finds then that he can move his mouth, pushes out his lower lip, huffs and huffs at the irritant mustache until the sweat blows away. He discovers that his back is arched and that the dullest of sensations has returned to his feet. He begins to feel again. This comforts him, and he relaxes. All he knows is that he's lying on his back on a comfortable, somehow buoyant surface, and yet when the lights come up moments later, a scene appears before him which suggests he is defying gravity, standing on his feet. Vertigo whirls him, the contents of his stomach push into his throat, and he looks away from the flickering scene with its clustered figures too quickly to assimilate it. With gritted teeth, he represses the surging knot at his throat, though this task swells his headache till it bulges against his eye. He lowers his head, sucking cool, cool breath. He finds that his coat has been removed and his shirt replaced by a thin shirt of some kind of gauzy material. Despite its thinness, he is hot. Both hands are folded across his chest in imitation of death. They thought, they thought I was dead, beaten, robbed, buried, would have been buried, would have been... Calm now, be calm, you're alive, yes, yes, alive. Clutching a stick, a walking stick. He can see only the bossed knob, a ring of silver around a black circle in the center of which has been penknifed the name Carter. Carter, Carter, Dr. Carter from Richmond? His hands are tingling now, and he can feel his legs to the knees. He watches his left foot move and is comforted by it somewhat. Blinking from sweat, he attempts to confront the bright and seemingly motionless scene before him. Squints in preparation, then raises his head, and then wishes he hadn't. The scene is grotesque. Culled from a nightmare, a sickly, malignant yellow light is cast by hundreds of misshapen candles, spitting, hissing, animal fat flames. The candles are high up on dozens of circular chandeliers, hung from chains that vanish above, where there's no sign of a ceiling. Wax plops onto robed figures who seem oblivious to it, figures who have remained motionless since he began to watch. They are gathered close together, facing away from him, intent on some central object. He thibbles he hears, above the candle's sibilance, a hiss of a different kind, as of something whipping through the air. He flutters his hands until the tingling dies away, then pushes away from the surface at his back. How can I be standing when I know I'm lying down? Takes a first hesitant step, like the first step into hell, moving slowly, delicately forward. Some enormous machine groans, shaking the floor, and he halts, poised like prey, ready to run. He hears squealing, glances down, and sees enormous rats weaving between the legs of the frozen figures. The rats skitter as he draws near. He stretches on his toes to see over the shoulders of the robes, but they're too tall. He risks reaching out, shoves gently at the two in front of him. They turn away easily, allowing him to slip between them, ignoring him as they ignore the rats. There are three rows of these robed figures. The two at the back close up behind him, and he's trapped among them, panicked by closing claustrophobia. Now sweat pours out all over him. He fights through the second row, kicking at the rats that scuttle over his boot. The swishing sound is much louder, and something black and enormous moves steadily in the dimness just ahead. He glances at the face beside him. It is shattered by the cowl, a thin face eaten by disease. The eyes, though narrowed, burn like those of the rats below, tiny jewels blinking at him from the floor. 
he cries out and shoves through the last row. The object of their rapt attention is a stone altar. He stands at the foot of it, watching. A single victim is strapped there, head back, neck muscles locked. He rocks desperately from side to side to break the belt across his waist. He wears a coarse parody of the robes around him. A shiny black crescent swings ponderously back and forth, lowering insidiously, notch by notch, with each pass over the victim's body. It's scant inches above him. No, the watcher shouts, and the victim raises his head to see who has yelled, and the watcher sees himself strapped there, sees the madness of the certainty of death on his own tortured face, and howls with terror. He looks frantically about the scene, sees one robed figure to the side, working a lever. He charges at that figure, who makes no attempt to defend his position. He swats the robed man aside with his stick and pulls the lever back, even as the blade splits the first few threads of the coarse gown the victim wears. Victim and watcher gibber out of control, weeping the same sound simultaneously. The watcher drops to his knees, suddenly overcome by his fever. He vomits up air and cries out, praying, God, tell me I'm not in hell, though that is precisely where he knows he is. He crawls toward his shackled double, certain that he must save that figure in order to save himself, not knowing why that should be or why he believes it, not caring, only crawling. His stomach heaves with every movement. He hears footsteps running as if down a mile of stairs, nearer, louder, like the fist pounding behind his eye. He reaches up blindly to unlace the belt, but his heavy arm slides away, and he falls face down onto the floor, stretched out beside his twin. When his eyes open, he is again on his back. His head rests on its cheek. He can see beside him a thin line of crimson ruffles between black lapels of a coat, the ruffles shadowed strangely from lighting set below. Painstakingly, he raises his eyes. The red ruffles lead up to a collar open at the throat, the space filled with a golden cravat. Above the shiny gold is a face that is proud, with a stiff jaw, cleft chin, wide, friendly mouth, fleshy nose, dark eyes and brows, and a high forehead. The face is smiling, delighted. The coat smells of ghastly French perfume. Can the devil look like this, he wonders. Who are you, he asks. My name is Reynolds, Mr. Poe. I've given you something for your fever. Sorry I failed to do that earlier. And a sedative. Poe's deep-set gray eyes blink in incomprehension. Sedative? Sleeping draft. Poe closes his eyes, feeling the sweat oily on the lids. Oh, that explains it. The dreams, he says softly. The horrible dreams I've had. My own words came down to haunt me. Never happened before. He glances again at the proud face lighted so sinisterly from below. Tell me, Mr. Reynolds... Am I in Philadelphia? No, sir. You were in Baltimore. He raises his head. But I was on the train for Philadelphia. I, I'd already left Baltimore. Yes, of course. But in your fever, I presume, you mistakenly caught the train back to Baltimore. Poe sinks back into the cushion. After a period of deliberation, he says, Then be so good as to take a letter for me and post it to Mother, to my dear Muddy. Reynolds' hand is passed over his head, and in his last moments of consciousness, Poe follows it, seeing for the first time a hairline of silver in the darkness behind Reynolds' head, which can be nothing other than the pendulum itself. 
and a splinter of terror accompanies him into dreamless sleep. When Poe awakens, Reynolds is standing in precisely the same position and place, watchful, imperturbable, so kindly a visage it would be impossible to dislike him. Reynolds exudes trust. Poe remains doubtful, however, uncertain of the border of reality as he searches in vain for the blade in the darkness above. Nothing is visible there. He refuses to accept the offered assurance in Reynolds' eyes, but says nothing. He will think me mad. He feels cooler, realizes his fever is broken, and that he seems full as if he had feasted while asleep, and amazingly his incessant headache is gone. I am recovered. Yes. He sits up gingerly, but finds himself feeling vigorous, healthy. For whatever you've given me, for whatever you've done to aid me, I, I cannot sufficiently thank you. I am in your debt more than you can know, but I am penniless to repay you. You see, even my coat has been stripped from me, no doubt by villains. My memories are so vague, there are periods when I recall nothing, when I stumble like a madman through the streets, so I'm told, because of my illness. That I have managed to retain this stick of Carter's is miraculous. Again, my thanks upon my rescue, sir. Think nothing of it. Reynolds pats him on the shoulder. My first thoughts were that I was dead and had been buried. You've no windows. Not here, no. But you're hardly dead, Mr. Poe. Yes, he agrees, and feeling so much better cannot help but add one of his habitual mendacious asides. However, I've been in many countries, sir, including Russia, and nowhere have I seen a place as dark and impenetrable as this. He pauses, as if thoughtfully, then adds for effect, with the possible exception of the Antarctic in summer. Nonetheless, you and I can see one another perfectly, so it comes I must ask you just where it is I am. Reynolds claps his hands and cries, Marvelous! Laughs. Of course you want to know. But please, come with me and let me explain while you see. See what, Mr. Reynolds? His expression hardens. Is my old rival Griswold responsible for my situation? Yes, I believe he is. Only he would be so bold as to... Griswold is dead, Mr. Poe. He gapes. What? Please come with me, he offers his hand and all will be explained. I do not care to trust you, yet I must appear to if I am to discover the explanation for this place, what it is, and where in Baltimore there must be a simple solution, such as a deep cellar, a moonless night, but where then are the windows? Griswold dead too, dear God. He allows Reynolds to help him stand, then follows as the tall man leads. He discovers that the floor which he could not see while on his back is the source of the sinister light. A ring around his unusual bed is composed of panels in the shape of stone tiles, but seemingly made of stained glass. Reynolds steps forward, and a trail of these colorful gems ignites, extending as far ahead as he can see. He's quite taken with the idea of lamps beneath a glass floor, a twinkling path like stars in the darkness. What a unique effect it conveys upon their features which seemingly change color with every stride, 
On either side of the path, the darkness is impenetrable and reminds him of bottomless chasms. A tiny knot of terror clenches in his stomach, and he turns all of his attention to the trail, concentrating on the sequence of colors, fighting against the frightening conjectures. He wants to understand the truth of this place and concentrates on the more helpful explanations. The mounting misgivings of his reverie are interrupted as Reynolds begins to speak. I am a student of your work. You may not have realized there were such people. Nevertheless, I've read every word you've ever written. I have, in fact, dedicated myself to erecting replicas of your work. I have chosen scenes, poems, tales, sometimes combining them, and modeled them into representations. He grins. I'm speechless, sir. I don't know what to say. That someone would construct a wax museum in his honor is astonishing. He relaxes, wondering if this accounts for the lack of light, for surely sunlight, heat, would melt wax figures. They must be protected, and a museum dedicated to him is proof of his rightness. Who else could make such claims, not Hawthorne or Cooper? A museum of his own, and in Baltimore. A museum, he says quietly, but with a pride so immense it has erased even his memory of being afraid. Reynolds latches onto the word, yes, a museum. And you've peopled it with your own reproductions of your work, yes. He dwells upon the scene he witnessed earlier depicting the pit and the pendulum. It was not a dream. Admittedly, it was lifelike, incredibly so. The man, he tells himself, is a genius in wax. Wax also accounts for the apparent intentness of the robed figures and why he was ignored, of course, but the victim had been himself. And it had moved, hadn't it? Or had that been illusion, madness, fever? He asks about this. Reynolds replies, of course it seemed lifelike. That is the illusion I strive for, and it was indeed your face. You were the narrator. Your voice was the story, so who better to represent you than you? Poe blanches. The thought of his double turning up as the victim in each exhibit is unsettling. He's unsure as to just how much of that he cares to see. Let me show you something, Reynolds says, as amiable as ever. He leads the way more quickly, bobbing with each step on the tiles. The clump of footsteps resounds from unseen walls and ceilings. The echoes sound cavernous. Poe reflects on the areas of Baltimore he knows and tries to place a building of this size. Then he recalls the train ride from Richmond. But that memory's ebbing, as vague as the recollection of a former life. He looks again at Reynolds wonders who this man can be. He's known a good many of the wealthy, the elite. This place would take money to build, yet he has never heard of Reynolds. Beyond this building, he begins. Reynolds, as if finishing his thought, says, is a city, yes. There, he grabs Poe's arm and turns him. Poe gasps into the palms of his hands. A few feet before him is greenish water glowing like liquid fire, and he seems to stand behind an enormous aquarium partition. The light that kindles the water comes from clustered phosphorescent buildings that squat on the murky ocean bottom. Twisted spires thrust between domes. Frescoed walls are hidden behind thick vines. The windows in the structure are comparatively dark. But as he watches, a light appears in one of them then moves on, carried by some unseen hand. He draws closer, peering. A fish swims lazily before him. He reaches out his hand to touch the glass. There is no glass. 
His hand comes back dripping, smelling of brine. His eyes plead to Reynolds, who pulls him back with a casual reply. Oh, done with mirrors, don't you know? He thinks, no, I don't know. I don't believe. You know this place, don't you? He looks again at the towers, though without turning his head, without facing it. The drowned city, he answers, horror-struck. He flicks water from his fingertips. I know it as I know myself. Well said, sir, his guide answers, shaking his head, marveling at his own creation. Obviously his guest is supposed to do likewise. He recites, Lo, death has reared himself a throne, in a strange city lying alone, far down within the dim west, where the good and the bad and the worst and the best have gone to their eternal rest. A marvelous verse, sir. The words attempt to inveigle him. Praise has always swayed him. Advocates of his work have never been evil, for how could a villain see truth so well? But not this time, not this one. Pope presents a favorable attitude, makes his voice sound joyous. You have created a wonderful work here, capturing every detail just as I saw it. Escape. I had hoped you would come to feel that way, especially after the first scene, which was an enormous error on my part. I had no idea how ill you were, that you would see it as a nightmare, and again I sincerely apologize, Mr. Poe. Think nothing of it. The honor you do me here is quite enough recompense. In God's name do I get out. Reynolds bows. There is so much more for you to see. Poe drops the sham of delight. The additional delay suggested is out of the question. It is important he try to make Reynolds aware of that, despite the risk of offending the man. Warily, he adds, That is most wonderful. He rubs at his eyelid. The headache like a hornet seems to have reclaimed its nest. Ignoring it, he continues, But, sir, you must understand, I have vital appointments in New York. Already I'm days late, no doubt. If you know anything about me, you know how much I want to begin my magazine. And it has come true. I will have the stylus if I carry through with my meetings. I could return at some future time, of course, to spend a week here with you. I, I will advertise your museum for you, let the world hear about you. They will come in droves, and your fame might well match mine. But I beg you, sir, to let me go now. He watches attentively for a shift of expression that will reveal the answer, but Reynolds' face still smiles. Nonsense, he says. I can assure you that you have lost no time, that not a solitary day will go by while you are here. Cold sweat beats on Poe's brow. His mouth is dryly clogged as with paste, his tongue thick. Nausea floods into him again as the medicine starts to wear off, but he cannot afford to falter now. How is that possible? I must be three days late as it is. How can you say that? Reynolds opens his mouth as if to reply, but closes it without a word, as if recognizing that any explanation would be impossible. And then he laughs and says, What are a few days to men like you or me? He laughs again. Then I am your prisoner until such time as you see fit to release me. Sweat trickles on his temple. He wipes it away, brushing his hand against his hair. It is matted. He hates being dirty. He shakes his head gently to clear his thoughts. No, Reynolds shouts aghast. I would never dream of such a thing. Would a host ask a prisoner to dine with him? Would he be held in a prison designed for his own introspection? Poe studies the guileless face. Yes, that is precisely the case when the host is a madman who thinks time outside has stopped for him. I'm your prisoner because I understand nothing here. Your questions are lies and your answers say nothing. Only confuse me. He says, I would be delighted to dine with you, but my fever and sickness are back. It is hardly a lie. His host waves it off. I can give you something for your fever again. Hesitantly. Very well. 
I thank you for that, but I am also tired and would prefer to rest first. Of course. And he leads the way back along the trail of gems hanging motionless in space where no stars sparkle. This place, Poish certain, can only be underground. There is no place in Baltimore so gargantuan that it could hold this museum of unnatural art. He will regain his strength through sleep, just as he did before, and then somehow escape. Even if it means clawing his way through sheer rock with his bare hands, he perceives now that the magnanimity his host has shown is that of a lunatic. These tableaus are supremely wrought, but all with that overpowering vision of a lunatic's reality. To Poe, they are more horrible than the demented dissection of a cat's eye, a ghastly image from childhood that haunts him. Trembling, he lies back on the flat, yielding beer, frightened nearly to tears, but fighting to remain outwardly composed. His host must not catch wind of his plan. Then Reynolds passes something over Poe's head, and he retreats to where the ubiquitous darkness drapes over all his troubles. His own voice, calling for Virginia, his late wife, awakens him. He lies still, seeing her face from the dream, yearns for her. Later, he listens for some sound to suggest that Reynolds is returning, has heard him, knows he is awake. There is no sound beyond the tubercular wheeze of his own breath, still racing from the dream. His vision rises through the supposed earth's crust into the daylight that must be above him, city streets where even now people search the alleys and taverns, expending every effort to find the ragged or the drunken Edgar Allan Poe. They might even have come to Reynolds' mansion while he slept. Mansion, he realizes, is a presumption on his part that on the surface is a facade, a structure with windows and curtains and drawing rooms, the falseness of which no person could detect. The thought of such a house redoubles his notion of captivity, ignoring the fact that the structure lives only in his mind. At the moment, his mind is the single reality he can trust. Escape. He sits up quickly. Somewhere there must be stairs, a way out, if only he can locate it. The problem is, where to look? Carter's malicious stick is leaning against his bed, and he picks it up as he slides down onto his feet, pressure lighting the tiles. Which way? A pathway lights, stretching out to a false horizon as he steps forward and vanishes when he moves on in a circle around his bed. A second one lights, then a third. Completing the circle, he has found eight paths that lead away like the dew-beaded threads of a web. Mr. Poe. He falls stricken against the altar. Reynolds stands beside him, holding a small device that looks like some bizarre chamberless pistol. It points loosely at his chest. Yet Reynolds' fixed smile still exudes charm and compassion. Poe is now certain that this is the smile of madness. He grips the cane tighter and raises it defensively. With heavy disappointment, Reynolds says, Mr. Poe, you surprise me. This is no weapon. His thumb snaps back the hammer. It's for your fever. It will alleviate your illness again. Poe swings the cane against Reynolds' wrist, but falls forward from the force behind the blow. The gun flies into the darkness, clatters somewhere. Reynolds' wrist dangles, broken. Still, he smiles. Poe scrambles to gather up his cane, stumbles into the lighted path, taking it, blind, hoping that it will somehow lead him from the nightmare. Mr. Poe! Mr. Poe! Running, running, aware that the lighted path is nothing other than his own rainbowed spore, he turns to the darkness, praying to God there's a floor out there. Soon he has crossed three paths. A corridor flares up before him, a long, thin hallway with brick walls and a smoking, burning brazier. The solidity of walls, ceiling, and floor comforts him. The cries of pursuit, Mr. Poe, are gone.
Only the flutter of the bluish flame is audible. He creeps stealthily into the lighted hallway. The smoke is pungent, and he coughs. Reaching a bend in the corridor, he discovers set in the wall on his left a large, slender, blue-stained glass window. Directly opposite it stands another brazier. Poe watches his shadow shrink as he nears the glass. Cupping his hand around his eyes, he peers through the lead-limed plates. On the other side is a room, an apartment, with polished wood furnishings, gold ornaments dangling from the ceiling, tapestries, carpet, portraits, flagons, and creatures, parodies of human form, some covered in fur, others in feathers, a grotesque gamut of faces, animal travesties. He realizes then with relief that it is a masquerade. More people enter the chamber every moment. There must be hundreds. Real people, he hears himself say. They are not wax. It is no dream, no fantasy. They move. He forces himself to leave the window and continue along the corridor, which turns every ten steps, each turn presenting a different window, a different color, the scheme of the tiny leaded panels giving view to another chamber. After the second one, the purple one, he knows where they lead, where he is going. And though he wants to pull away, to retreat the way he has come, the situation is as it was with the drowned city. He is helpless to resist. The last window is red. The chamber within is black, and every detail is smothered in a hellish glow. There is the black clock rising out of view. There the people standing in the doorway, afraid to enter this ghastly travesty of a tomb. There a tall figure wrapped in a shroud, its cadaverous mask mottled with drops of blood, empty of eyes. Suddenly the figure turns toward him. The red death stalks him through the glass. The clock strikes once. A tremor runs across the floor, travels up his legs. Dust sprinkles from the ceiling. He flees up the corridor as the clock strikes again into darkness, as the hollow, dismal note rings again, followed ineluctably by another on, 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 changing pitch subtly until it is the reverberating peal of bells, 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 clapping at his ears, inescapably near, beating in time with his heart. A rainbow path flashes as he runs across a stone. He stumbles and falls across the top of a flight of stairs. The bells stop. Scraping, slow footsteps approach. He huddles beside an oaken banister. Out of the darkness, a figure with lustrous eyes appears, searching, unaware of his presence, the face scarred by more grief than he has ever seen on one face. The tissue cheeks are collapsed in against the bones. The thin lips quiver, part, Madman. The figure clasps his hands to his ears against his own voice. He removes them only a few inches, fingers spread. Now hear it. As Poe watches, his own double appears again, this time dressed in his usual black habiliments. The double takes the other's arm with care and leads him through the open doorway. The door swings closed. A moment later he hears a somber voice, Roderick Usher's voice, and yet his own, begin to read from the mad tryst. He flees, leaps the last of the stairs out of Usher's sinking house and into black limbo. Sparks of color dance in his eyes. He coughs up something thick from his lungs, spits it out. His head seems light, cloudy, but so very hot. Another chamber appears around him, but this one is more ghoulish than any he has entered before. It is a vault. The walls carry inscriptions on plaques behind which he infers are the corpses that match the names. He arrives at the end of the vault. The plaque reads, Madeleine. Even as he comprehends it, he grows aware of faint scraping sounds, slithering, icy, clutching at his backbone. His body shakes like a hooked fish, and he falls against a wall. The scraping is louder. 
He envisions fingernails digging in death's darkness, and he tilts back his head, eyes bulging his mustache, outlining the scream to come. The plaque falls and shatters on the ground. Above it, two bricks vanish into the wall, and a set of bloodied, shredded fingers curls over the edge of the hole. Light glints from a single milky eyeball. Roderick, calls the husky voice of the tomb. He shrieks, runs, plunging away from it all. Reynolds, please, Reynolds, stop this. This is the desolation of my soul. His cries are unanswered. He runs on. A vague figure looms from out of the darkness. He runs toward it. Reynolds, he sobs, choking back the last sob. Stop. He falls slowly to his knees. A few feet in front of him is a woman. She's tall, wrapped in bandages, which even as he scrambles back, biting his hand to keep from screaming, she begins to unravel. From her mouth, from her hair, falling thick and glossy black below her shoulders. Her large eyes open. No, he cries, no, and rolls back, his stomach heaving. His head wants to explode. She walks purposefully after him. She is Ligia, but she resembles no one in Poe's life so much as his dead and cherished wife, Virginia. His fever alters any differences in her appearance. She is his wife. The frail shell of his sanity slides like the house into the tarn. Running as a reflex of panic, figures, rooms, ghosts assail him, but he stops for none of them, responds to none of them. He wants out, only out. He comes upon a door that's nothing he's ever envisioned. A wide, gleaming door of glass, but there is no handle. He pushes against it. It is immovable. He has no idea how to get through, and he knows, somehow, that he must. You mustn't go there, a voice calls. He recognizes Reynolds moving out of the dimness between paths, and immediately he backs away, raises the stick. You could not stand it, the host continues unmoved. Poe sees the hand that he'd broken with the stick, sees that it is no longer broken. His lips draw back from his teeth, and he stares sidelong like a rabid wolf. Poe, you should not have run. It was wrong. Reynolds' tone is that of a regretful father speaking to his child. I'm so sorry, so utterly sorry. Others have come here and enjoyed it, but I didn't know you were ill. No one did, for certain. There's no one to blame but myself for this. And that kindly smile goes on forever. Such kindness is lost on Poe. The sympathy conveyed is buried beneath the jarring beat of his headache. Pink foam bubbles in one corner of his mouth. He screams in pain and rage. Reynolds is taller, heavier, but Poe grabs him and hurls him at the door, smashes Reynolds' head into it again and again with frenzied strength. One side of the proud face cracks. A slice of it flips up, falls onto the glowing tiles and rocks there like a gutted clamshell. Poe continues to batter Reynolds against the door until the clear wall flexes and shatters. Only then does he release Reynolds and see the destruction he's caused in that proud face. No blood. The wound is razor-sharp, a gash in the hollow of the cheek the size of his palm. Within it is a crosswork of woven fiber. No blood. Poe squeezes tears of agony and confusion from his eyes. Reynolds says, Mr. Poe, in a syrupy, slow voice. Poe turns and leaps headlong through the shattered door. As he rolls, dazed, his arm is cut by a jagged shard. A ramp suddenly illuminates a glowing maroon, a ramp that leads upward. Someone calls out from behind him. He runs, crying with joy, sucking in horse-ripping breaths, pleading to God to save him. The ramp seems to go on as far as heaven, up, up, until he reaches a plateau and another door. It is solid metal and hums to life as he touches it. He cowers. It rolls back, buzzing, to let him escape. 
He's outside before he comprehends the landscape. Black trees bent from the weight of swollen cystic leaves surround him and dance in an acid breeze. No grass, but rotted, eroded gray ground, smelling of centuries of decay. The sky is red behind brown clouds. The hazy sun hangs like a dead eye. He coughs and closes his hand over his mouth, beginning to choke. A thin trickle of blood escapes between his fingers. Hell, it is hell after all, like no hell ever seen. I'm doomed by God to live in my own nightmares, and soon they'll come to take me back to my own mind. Oh, Virginia, it is, it is, the haunted palace is hell. He sees down an embankment a large valley that has once held water but is now dry. Thick smoke rises from it. He cannot run there. In the other direction, through tears, he beholds twisted towers, some as high as mountains, their surfaces like the scales of serpents, stiff snakes twined against the bloody sky. Small, lumpy shapes move on the ground there, and he shudders at seeing them, knows no safety there either. He whirls around. The building he has escaped is a black mound with a small black cupola at the top, glossy, shining, a clean, polished anomaly. He vomits pink foam, leans against one of the spongy trees. The leaves above him spill a thick, yellow fluid on his shoulder. He screams and flings himself away toward the building, then stops, skids, and falls back. In the doorway, Reynolds stands motionless. His dull smile, as though painted on, curves up to the jagged hole in his cheek. Beside him, moving forward, is a short gargoyle figure. Its flesh is gray and leathery, its torso hangs in doughy folds, flopping like a clotted skirt just above the ground. It is the image of the creature's poesine below the towers. The feet are in shadow, the arms are short, reedy, fingers grossly extended, and the face, the face, is a lump on its necklace shoulders. The eyes are jelly, the nose a single vertical vent, the lips purple and crumpled in an uncordial crescent. Reynolds, he now perceives, is his only hope for salvation from this purgatory. He would plead and prostrate himself. He would beg his host to take him home, to take him away, to save him, to explain, just to explain. But the swollen gray monster moves between them with alarming ease, and Poe dares not step forward. Reynolds, he shrieks, Reynolds. His host remains seemingly ignorant of him, staring blankly ahead, smiling as before. The monster moves closer. Poe scrabbles to the crest of the hill. Reynolds! The large purple lips part, and the monster speaks. A raw, bubbling voice not meant for English speech, but conveying a tone of detached annoyance, and somehow, in some vague way, reminiscent of Reynolds' voice. He does not hear you, Poe. I've shut him off. What? His head begins to shake, as from chills. He's only a mechanism. Voice activated. I'll stop it. One of the hands raises, fingers curled, looking like some kind of hide-covered claw. The creature snarls, I brought you all this way forward, gone to incalculable expense and trouble, to learn your language, build your monument, for you, or for you, and you refuse to take solace. You have not entertained me at all. You are only Reynolds Poe. I am your host. I brought you here from out of your sleeping compartment. You saw Reynolds because you could not have stood the sight of me, could you? Can you? The creature appears to have expanded. Poe's mind spins, dazzled, tumbled, and the creature's words are no more distinguishable than the horrendous roar of breakers on rocks. But he fights off the weight of the fever, refuses to be dragged into unconsciousness. He clamps his hands over his ears, as if this will shut out the roar, and shouts, What are you? Where am I?
There's little point in explaining further. You cannot be expected to comprehend the differences in the world eight thousand years have made. You weren't supposed to see it. The gray face darkens to the color of its lips. Poe stares blankly. The stick drops from his hand. Is this a man? God, oh God, no. How can these things be? That a city and this museum of abominations? And he calls me his entertainment? No, no, no. Bells, hear it. I grab the poor beast by the throat. His hands in loose fists pound at the sides of his head. He falls to his knees. The cane of Dr. Carter lies before him, tangled in threads of mist. And deliberately cut one of its eyes from the socket of the bells, the bells, the bells. The gray bulk turns. Reynolds, it burbles, hawks, and spits out a wad of brown syrup. Poe's fingers caress the knob of the walking stick. He's not aware of himself rising to his feet. Reynolds, come and collect Mr. Poe. The stick smashes down upon the back of the lumpy gray head. Again, again Poe batters out the soft brains, breaks the eyeballs like egg yolks that ooze down the face, caves in the ridge around the single nostril, spatters blood from the lips before Reynolds can rip the frail, dying madman off of his bloated dead host. Reynolds takes away Poe's stick with an ungraceful tug. Poe looks up at the proud, cracked face. Reynolds? He says timidly like a child. His fist is balled around the tail of Reynolds' coat. Yeah, yes, Mr. Poe, please. Please come with me. Reynolds' speech has become flat and disjointed. It's time I sent you back home. I am really very, very sorry. It's never happened before. Poe, not listening, looks back at the corpse as Reynolds leads the way into the black mound. Poe tags after his eyes, idiot and childlike, his mind running free through unconnected verse. The play is the tragedy man and its hero, the conqueror worm, the conqueror worm, the conqueror worm. They shamble, the manic and the mechanism, down a sparkling trail of gems. The colored specks wink out behind them until the museum is reinstated in its shroud of gloom. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Evermore. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Mr. Gregory Frost. And what a great story and what a great tribute to Edgar Allan Poe as well. Gregory, thank you so much. Do look out for another short story coming by Gregory Frost. I'll put a link on to Mr. Frost's website. And like I said, Gregory Frost narrated that story as well. So hats off. What a grand narrator Gregory is. Well done, sir. Excellent. So we will come on to new titles. Four new titles have fell through the door and one of them made such a thud. Big chunky Ian Irvine, The Destiny of the Dead. And it's one of those trade paperbacks and it weighs in at a big 700 and odd, 730, 20 pages. 
massive thing that thing was. And this is actually part three of the Song of the Tears. I did part two, which was, let me have a look there because I can't uh, remember. The Curse of the Chosen. Uh, that came through as a new title as well, but that was just like a normal paperback. This one, you know how they kind of, instead of doing the hardback version, they kind of they do this trade paperback version. And like I say, a chunky mother of a thing. And just describe the front cover. It has got like an upside down tear in like a jade mottled colour. And it's inset into this kind of scarab looking claw metal machine creature thing. So it looks quite impressive. I always like his covers. They're quite striking on the on the bookshelves. The blurb on the back says, A brightness is burning that will scorch the earth. I quite like that, to be quite honest. That, um, that tickles my fancy, that does. Nish and his few remaining allies are trapped on the range of ruin. Surrounded by the relentless army of his father, the God Emperor, Nish's only choices are humiliating surrender or a suicidal fight to the death. Mmm, sounds intriguing. Yet Nish has to fight and somehow has to, he has to win. For the world of Santhra faces a colossal threat, and Nish is a fighter in a land whose spirit was broken long ago. A shape-shifting being by the name of Stilkeen has broken out of the void and is preparing to wreak devastation. It has come to reclaim the stolen, chthonic power that once bound the physical and the spirit aspects together, and its fury is infinite. But the Chthonic fire has already been released into Santhrasar and is eating its way through the Anthrathic territories. Even if Nish can win the battle of his father, there is no way to stop the fire or the Stilkeen before everything is consumed. A little bit of praise for Ian Irvine. Hang on with both hands because this story waits for no one. SFX. Starburst says epic non-stop action. That's not a very good blurb. That I could, I think the starship sofa could be seeing a bit better blurb than blooming epic non-stop action. Come on! So that is the first one. Ian Irvine's "The Destiny of the Dead" it comes out fifteenth of January by Orbit. Just chuck that monster over there. There you go. Second one, totally different here. Yeah? One more bite by Jennifer. I think it's Radin. And it's one of those cheeky little paperbacks, you know, it's like kind of those stuffed in the back pockets, you know, throw away. It doesn't, I know that sounds kind of cheeky, but, you know, it's it's one of those kind of throwaway paperbacks. It might be fantastic, to be quite honest. And actually, this is number five in a series, so, you know, Jennifer is doing something right. There was also one bitten twice shy, another one bites the dust, biting the bullet, bitten to death, one more bite... Like I said, oh, this is one more bite. And there's actually, there's another one coming as well, which it says in, this is another Orbit one with the little extras in the back, bite marks, book six. It it sounds and it reads a bit like CIA vampires. (laughs) Well, it says actually here, but there's praise on the back of the book. Praise for Jazz Park's books. Bond meets Dracula, only better than that. SciFiChick.com says, with non, non-stop action and adventure, this fantasy spy series not to be missed. You know, I'm kind of saying it's a throwaway novel. It is probably really quite good, do you know what I mean? So I'll give you a little read-up on the back. It's Jazz Parks checking in with the latest dark supernatural double-dealing. 
I've already smote a guy who was in the who was a pain in the CIA's you know what for the past few years. But now, in the power vacuum left by the death of Edward the Raptor Samso, a struggle for supremacy has begun between his former allies. The CIA feels the balance must be maintained. So when a Valencian way agent discovers a plot to assassinate the coven of Inverness's leader, me and my vampire hottie boss are drafted in. Our mission, to take out the woman hired to do the deed, a killer who might be as wily and gifted as ourselves. So it's off to the Scottish Highlands for some twisted fun among the murderous demons and half-crazed relatives. Sometimes being a top-secret CIA assassin isn't all it's cracked up to be. There you go, urban fantasy. We've got Orbit's got this one classed as. Give you a little heads up on. There's not actually that much to say on the author, Jennifer Radden. Began writing at the age of 12, mostly poems to amuse her classmates and short stories featuring her best friends as her heroines. She lives in an old farmhouse in Illinois with her husband and two children. Find out more about her at jenniferradden.com. There you go. It is just a little thin little number. Wait, 312 pages. It's all right, I suppose. It is priced at 6 99 There you go. Picture on the front is of a lady, a young lady's back with a nice, actually, nice graduated bob from my old hairdressing tears there. Got a nice graduated bob, but she's got some big killing knife strapped to her back with a bit of blood coming off it. Very good. Actually, I quite like the cover, to be quite honest. I'm normally not, as you know, normally not into those kind of human covers, but it's all right. It'll do. <laughs> Next one is by or from Tor.com. Dragonfly Fallen. It's book two in The Shadows of the Act, and it's by Adrian Tchaikovsky. There you go. This, let's give you a little kind of description of the book. It's kind of a, a blue kind of as if it was like frozen ice, kind of blue cracked cover. And there's somehow, it's like some sort of like kind of, looks like a, a black assassin ninja warrior. And he's got a big long blade and it's cracking into ice and the sparks coming off it. Dragonfly fallen. I'll give you the reading on the back. The armies of the Wast Empire are on the march. And first to feel their might will be the city of Tark, which is now preparing for siege. Within its walls, Salma and Tutho must weather the storm as the Ant Kindren take a stand against numbers and weaponry such as the Lowlands have never seen. After his early victory against them, the Empire's Secret Service had decided that Stenworld Maker is too dangerous to live, so disgraced Major Thralak is dispatched on a desperate mission not only to eliminate Stenwold himself but to bring about the destruction of his beloved city, Colgenium, and thus end all hope of intelligence resistance to remorseless imperial advance. While the Empire's troops are laying waste in all their way, the young Emperor himself is treading a different path. His thoughts are on darker things than mere conquest. However, and if he attains his goal, he will participate in a reign of blood that will last a thousand years. Mm, there you go, gripping stuff. Adrian Tyskowski was born in Lincolnshire and studied zoology and psychology at Reading before practising law in Leeds. He is a keen live role player and occasional amateur actor and is a trained in stage fighting. 
His influences include Gene Wolfe, Mervyn Peake, China Merville, Mary Gentle, Stephen Erickson, Naomi Novak, Scott Lynch and Alan Campbell. Like I say, this is book two in the shadows of the apt, the dragonfly fallen. Priced at seven ninety nine. published 6th of February. There you go. Tor. Just put that one over there. Last one. And another chunky mother, another one of those trade paperbacks, R. Scott Baker, a judging, The Judging Eye. SFS says a class act. Now, did they not say that about? Let's just have a look. Ian Irvine. No, they didn't. They, the SFX said, hang on with both hands because <laughs> the story waits for no one. I thought they were using the same blurb there. I was going to say, hey, listen, let me have a go. No, they say a class act. The Judge and I. Is this book one or book two? It looks like book one. Book one of the Aspect Empress series. There you go. Getting in there first with that one. I think this is one of the first ones where it's been book one. Did I give it? Uh, yes, I did. I was going to say, did I give a description of a, what the cover looked like on Fallen Dragon? I did. This one is kind of squirrely patterns, a, a bit like an Arab cloth background, hills all kind of blurred out. And there's some sort of disc ring with images carved on it. Then there's a human face with kind of, I would say, you know them kind of blue tattoos you see on on people like barbarians, you know, like the... Brave Heart Warriors, that kind of thing. There's some kind of blue-faced guy there with these tattoos all over his face. It's quite a nice striking cover, to be quite honest. Twelve ninety-nine Orbit again. A score of years after he first walked into the histories of men, Kellis rules all the three seas, the first true aspect emperor in a thousand years. The masses worship Kellis as a living god, though a few dare claim he's a walking demon. With Prius and Sorbon as his exalt generals, he leads a holy war deep in the waste of ancient north, intent on preventing the second apocalypse. Meanwhile, his wife and consort, Esmende, remains in Mormon, where she struggles to rule not only his vast empire, but their murderous children as well. And Archimane, who lives as a wizard in embittered exile, undertakes a mad quest to uncover the origins of the Durain. But Archimane, of all people, should know that one must be very careful what one seeks. Got some praise here for R. Scott Baker. Stephen Erickson says, Exquisitely intelligent and beautifully written, take note, one and all, something remarkable has begun. Publishers Weekly says, Compelling, keeps the page turning. Alien Online says, Something special, the entire series is going to set a new stand for fancy writing everywhere. R. Scott Baker the Judge and I, there you go. Both that one and the Ian Irvine, The Destiny of the Dead, come out on, I think it's the 15th of, let's have a just check. Yes, 15th of January. So we have R. Scott Baker's The Judge and I, Ian Irvine's The Destiny of the Dead, The Dragonfly Fallen by Adrian Tchaikovsky and Jennifer Radden with One More Bite. That is New Titles. Moving on to the final part, part three of Temptation by David Brin. I hope you've been sticking around for this story because it is a fascinating story. You know, it's part of the kind of the uplift saga or it's all kind of tied in with that. And, you know, this is the first time Starship Sofa's run like a serial and I'm quite proud of it. So we'll hand you over to Julie Davis who rounds off this final part of 
Temptation by David Brin. Previously in Temptation by David Brin, a colony of neo-dolphins with uplifted intelligence has been left on the largely unexplored planet of Jijo. One dolphin, Pipo, has been kidnapped. Tiket has been sent to find her. Both have discovered something mysterious under the ocean. They individually go to investigate. Tiket finds a ship full of pods with miniatures of known races that seem to be living a separate existence from anything outside the pod. Pipo discovers a different ship with different landscapes that similarly support different species who do not seem to be aware of anything outside their immediate existence. Each encounter is a representative of a different race that offers an explanation. Temptation by David Brin Copyright 1998 by David Brin All rights reserved. No duplication or resale without permission. Part 3 Givers of Wonder A time of changes comes. Worlds are about to divide. Galaxies that formerly were linked by shortcuts of space and time soon will sunder apart. The old civilization, including all the planets you come from, will no longer be accessible. Their ways won't dominate this part of the cosmos anymore. Isolated, this island realm of 100 billion stars, formerly known as Galaxy 4, will soon develop its own destiny, fostering a bright new age. It has been foreseen that Jijo will provide the starting seed for a glorious culture unlike any other. The six, and now seven, sapient species who came sneaking secretly to this world as refugees, skulking in order to hide like criminals on a forbidden shore, will prosper beyond all their wildest imaginings. They will be co-founders of something great and wonderful, forerunners of all the star-faring races who may follow in this fecund stellar whirlpool. But what kind of society should it be? One that is a mere copy of the noisy, bickering, violent conglomeration that exists back in civilized space? One based on crude so-called sciences? Physics? Cybernetics? And biology? We have learned that such obsessions lead to soullessness. A humorless culture, operated by reductionists who measure the cost-benefit ratios of everything and know the value of nothing. There must be something better. Indeed, consider how the newest sapient races, fresh from uplift, look upon their world with a childlike sense of wonder. What if that feeling could be made to last? To those who have just discovered it, the power of speech itself is glorious. A skill with words seems to hold all the potency anyone should ever need. Still heedful of their former animal ways, these infant species often use their new faculty of self-expression to perceive patterns that are invisible to older, wiser minds. 
Humans were especially good at this during the long ages of their lonely abandonment on isolated Earth. They had many names for their systems of wondrous cause and effect, traditions that arose in a myriad land-bound tribes. But nearly all of these systems shared certain traits in common, a sense that the world is made of spirits living in each stone or brook or tree, an eager willingness to perceive all events, even great storms and the movements of planets, as having a personal relationship with the observer, a conviction that nature can be swayed by those favored with special powers of sight, voice, or mind, raising those elite ones above other mere mortals, a profound belief in the power of words to persuade and control the world. Magic was one word that humans used for this way of looking at the universe. We believe it is a better way, offering drama, adventure, vividness, and romance. Yet, magic can take many forms, and there is still some dispute over the details. Alternating Views of Temptation Tiquette found the explanation bizarre and perplexing at first. How did it relate to this strange submersible machine whose gut was filled with crystal fruit, each containing an intelligent being who leaped about and seemed to focus fierce passion on things only he or she could see? Still, as an archaeologist, he had some background studying the tribal human past, so eventually a connection clicked in his mind. You, you are using technology to give each individual a private world. But, but there's more to it than that, isn't there? Are you saying that every hoon or human or tricky inside these crystal c containers gets to cast magic spells? They don't just manipulate false objects by hand and see tailored illusions, they also shout incantations and have the satisfaction of watching them come true? Tiquette blinked several times, trying to grasp it all. Take that woman over there. He aimed his rostrum at a nearby cube, wherein a female human grinned and pointed amid a veritable cloud of resistance threads. If she has an enemy, can she mold a clay figure and stick pins in it to cast a spell of pain? The little gekek spun its wheels before answering emphatically. True enough, oh perceptive dolphin! Of course she has to be creative. Talent and a strong will are helpful, and she must adhere to the accepted lore of her simulated tribe. Arbitrary rules, you mean. The eye stalks shrugged gracefully. Arbitrary, but elegant and consistent. And there is another requirement. Above all, our user of magic must intensely believe. Peepo blinked at the diminutive wizard standing on the nearby dock in the shadow of a fairyland castle. You mean people in this place can command the birds and insects and other beasts using words alone? She had witnessed it happen dozens of times, but to hear it explained openly like this felt strange. The gray-cloaked human nodded, speaking rapidly, eagerly. Special words, 
the power of secret names, terms that each user must keep closely guarded. But, above all, most creatures will only obey those with inborn talent, individuals who possess great force of will. Otherwise, if they heeded everybody, where would be the awe and envy that lie at the very heart of sorcery? If anyone can do a thing, it soon loses all worth. A miracle pulls when it becomes routine. It is said that technology used to be like that back in the old civilization. Take what happened soon after Earth humans learned, discovered how to fly. Soon, everybody could soar through the sky, and people took the marvel for granted. How tragic! That sort of thing does not happen here. We preserve wonder like a precious resource. People sputtered. But all this... She flicked her jaws, spraying water toward the jungle and the steep, fleshy cliffs beyond. All of this smacks of technology. That absurd fire-breathing dragon, for instance, clearly bioengineered. Somebody set up this whole thing as... as an... As an experiment? The gray-clad mage conceded with a nod. His beard shook as he continued with eager fire. That has never been secret. Ever since our ancestors were selected from among Jijo's land-bound six races to come dwell below the sea in smaller but mightier bodies, we knew that one purpose would be to help the Buyar fine-tune their master plan. Taket reared back in shock, churning water with his flukes, he stared at the many-eyed creature who had been explaining this weird chamber of miniatures. The Buyar? They left Jijo half a million years ago. How could they even know about human culture, let alone set up this elaborate... Of course the answer to that question is simple, replied the little Gekek, peering with several eye stalks from its cracked crystal shell. Our Buyar lords never left... They have quietly observed and guided this process ever since the first ship of refugees slinked down to Jijo, preparing for the predicted day when natural forces would sever all links between Galaxy 4 and the others. But the great evacuation of starfaring clans from Galaxy 4 half an eon ago made sure that no other techno-sapiens remain in this soon-to-be-isolated starry realm. So it will belong to our descendants, living in a culture far different than the dreary ones our ancestors belonged to. Teket had heard of the Boyar, of course, among the most powerful members of the civilization of five galaxies, and one of the few elder races known for a sense of humor, albeit a strange one. It was said that they believed in long jokes that took ages to plan and execute. Was that because the Buyar found galactic culture stodgy and stifling? Most Earthlings would agree. Apparently, 
They foresaw all of the changes and convulsions that were today racking the linked star lanes and began preparing millennia ago for an unparalleled opportunity to put their own stamp on an entirely new branch of destiny. Pipo nodded, understanding part of it at last. This leviathan, this huge organic beast, isn't the only experimental container cruising below the waves. There are others. Many? Many, confirmed the little gray-bearded human wizard. The floating chambers take a variety of forms, each accommodating its own colony of sapient beings. Each habitat engages its passengers in a life that is rich with magic, though in uniquely different ways. Here, for instance... We sapient beings experience physically active lives in a totally real environment. It is the wild creatures around us who were altered. Surely you have heard that the Boyar were master gene crafters. In this experimental realm, each insect, fish, and flower knows its own unique and secret name by learning and properly uttering such names, a mage like me can wield great power. Tiket listened as the cheerful Gakek explained the complex experiment taking place in the chamber of crystalline fruits. In our habitat, each of us gets to live in his or her own world, one that is rich, varied, and physically demanding even if it is a mostly computer-driven simulation. Within such an ersatz reality, every one of us can be the lead magician in a society or tribe of lesser peers. Or the crystal fruits can be linked, allowing shared encounters between equals. Either way, it is a vivid life filled with more excitement than the old way of so-called engineering. A life in which the mere act of believing can have power, and wishing sometimes makes things come true. Pipo watched the gray magician stroke his beard while describing the range of Boyar experiments. There are many other styles, modes, and implementations being tried out in scores of other habitats. Some emphasize gritty reality, while others go so far as to eliminate physical form entirely, encoding their subjects as digital personae in wholly computerized worlds. Downloading personalities... People recognized the concept. It was tried back home and never caught on, even though boosters said it ought to, logically. There is an ultimate purpose to all of these experiments, the human standing on the nearby pier explained, like a proselyte eager for a special convert. We aim to find exactly the right way to implement a new society that will thrive across the star lanes of Galaxy 4 once separation is complete and all the old hyperspatial transit paths are gone. When this island whirlpool of a hundred 
billion stars is safe at last from interference by the old civilization, it will be time to start our own, one that is based on a glorious new principle. By analyzing the results of each experimental habitat, the noble boyar will know exactly how to implement a new realm of magic and wonders. Then, the age of true miracles can begin. Listening to this, Pipo shook her head. You don't sound much like a rustic feudal magician. I just bet you're something else. In disguise. Are you a boyar? The gekek bowed within its crystal shell. That's a very good guess. That's a very good guess, my dolphin friend. Though, of course, the real truth is complicated. A real boyar would weigh much more than a metric ton and somewhat resemble an earthling frog. Nevertheless, you, Tiket prompted. I have the honor of serving as a spokesman intermediary. To help persuade you dolphins, the newest promising colonists on Jijo, that joining us will be your greatest opportunity for vividness, adventure, and a destiny filled with marvels. The little human wizard grinned, and people realized that the others nearby must not have heard or understood a bit of it. Perhaps they wore earplugs to protect themselves against the power of the mage's words. Or else, Anglic was rarely spoken here. Perhaps it was a language of power. Pipo also realized she was both being tested and offered a choice. Out there in the world... We few dolphin settlers face an uncertain existence. Mackinney has no surety that our little pod of reverts will survive the next winter, even with help from the other colonists ashore. Anyway, the six races have troubles of their own, fighting Joffer invaders. She had to admit that this offer had tempting aspects. After experiencing several recent Jijo storms, Pipo could see the attraction of bringing all the other streaker exiles aboard some cozy underseas habitat, presumably one with bigger stretches of open water, and letting the Buyar perform whatever techno-magic it took to reduce dolphins in size so they would fit their new lives. How could that be any worse than the three years of cramped hell they had all endured aboard poor streaker? Presumably, some day, when the experiments were over, her descendants would be given back their true size, after they had spent generations learning to weave spells and cast incantations with the best of them. Oh, we could manage that, she thought. We dolphins are good at certain artistic types of verbal expression. After all, what is trinary but our own special method of using sound to persuade the world? talking it into assuming vivid sonic echoes and dreamlike shapes, coaxing it to make sense in our own cetacean way. The delicious temptation of it all reached out to Pipo. What is the alternative? Assuming we ever find a way back to civilization, what would we go home to? 
a gritty fate that at best offers lots of hard work, where it can take half a lifetime just learning the skills you need to function usefully in a technological society. Real life isn't half as nice as the tales we first hear in storybooks. Everybody learns at some point that it's a disappointing world out there, a universe where good is seldom purely handsome, and evil doesn't obligingly identify itself with red glowing eyes. A complex society filled with trade-offs and compromises, as well as committees and political opponents who always have much more power than you think they deserve. Who wouldn't prefer a place where the cosmos might be talked into giving you what you want, or where wishing sometimes makes things true? We already have two volunteers from your esteemed race, the Gekek spokesman explained, causing Tiket to quiver in surprise. With a flailing of eye stalks, the wheeled figure commanded that a hologram appear just above the water's surface. Taquette at once saw two large male dolphins lying calmly on mesh hammocks, while tiny machines scurried all over them, spinning webs of some luminescent material. Chasis, long, silent, and brooding, abruptly recognized the pair and shouted primal recognition. Caught! Caught in nets as they deserved! Foolish, zacky, nasty Mopal! Ifni, Tiket commented, I think you're right. But what's being done to them? They have already accepted our offer, said the little wheeled intermediary. Soon, those two will dwell in realms of holographic and sensual delights aboard a different experimental station than this one. Their destiny is assured, and let me promise you, they will be happy. You're sure those two aren't here aboard this vessel near me? Pipo asked nervously, watching Zaki and Mopol undergo their transformation via a small image that the magician had conjured with a magic phrase and a wave of one hand. No. Your associates followed a lure to one of our neighboring experimental cells. To their senses, it appeared to be a leviathan resembling one of your earthling blue whales. Once they had come aboard, preliminary appraisals showed that their personalities will probably thrive best in a world of pure fantasy. They eagerly accepted this proposal. Pipo nodded, shocked only at her own lack of emotion, either positive or negative toward this final disposal of her tormentors. They were gone from her life, and that was all she really cared about. Let Ifni decide whether their destination qualified as a permanent imprisonment or a strange kind of heaven. Well, now they can have harems of willing cows to their heart's content, she thought. Good riddance. Anyway, she had other quandaries to focus on, closer at hand. What have you got... "'Planned for me?' The Grey Wizard spread his arms in eager consolation. "'Nothing frightening or worrisome, O esteemed dolphin friend. At this point we are simply asking that you choose. Will you join us? No one is coerced. But how could anybody refuse? If one lifestyle does not suit you, pick another.' 
select from a wide range of enchanted worlds, and further be assured that your posterity will some day be among the magic wielders who establish a new order across a million suns. Taket saw implications that went beyond the offer itself. The plan of the Buyar, its scope and the staggering range of their ambition, left him momentarily dumbfounded. They want to set up a whole galaxy-spinning civilization, based on what they consider to be an ideal way of life. Someday soon, after this time of changes has ruptured the old intergalaxy links, the Buyar will be free from any of the old constraints of law and custom that dominated oxygen-breathing civilizations for the last billion years. Then out of this planet, there will spill a new wave of starships, crewed by the seven races of Jijo, commanded by bold captains, wizards, and kings, a mixture of themes from old-time science fiction and fantasy, pouring forth toward adventure. Over the course of several ages, they will fight dangers, overcome grave perils, discover and uplift new species. Eventually, the humans and Urs and Trachis and others will become revered leaders of a galaxy that is forever filled with high drama. In this new realm, boredom will be the ultimate horror, placidity the ultimate crime. The true masters, the Buyar, will see to that. Like great Oz manipulating levers behind a curtain, the Buyar will use their high technology to provide every wonder. Ask for dragons? They will gene-craft or manufacture them. Secret factories will build sea monsters and acid-mouthed aliens ready for battle. It will be a galaxy run by special effects wizards, a perpetual theme park whose inhabitants use magic spells instead of engineering to get what they want. Conjurers and monarchs will replace tedious legislatures. Impulse will supplant deliberation. And lists of secret names will substitute for physics. Nor will our descendants ask too many questions. Or dare to pull back the curtain and expose Oz. Those who try won't have descendants. Cushioned by hidden artifice, in time, people will forget nature's laws. They will flourish in vivid kingdoms, forever setting forth heroically, returning triumphantly or dying bravely, but never asking why. Taquette mused on this while filling the surrounding water with intense sprays of sonar clicks. Chassis, who had clearly not understood much of the Gakek's convoluted explanation, settled close by rolling her body through the complex rhythms of Taquette's worried thoughts. Finally, he felt that he grasped the true significance of it all. Taquette swam close to the crystal cube, raising one eye until it was level with the small representative of the mighty Buyar. "'I think I get what's going on here,' he said. "'Yes?' the little Gakek answered cheerfully. "'And... What is your sage opinion, O dolphin friend? What do you think of this great plan? Tiquette lifted his head high out of the water, rising up on churning flukes, emitting chittering laughter from his blowhole. At the same time, a sardonic trinary haiku floated from his clicking brow. 
Sometimes sick egos foster in their narrow brains really stupid jokes. Some aspects of the offer were galling, such as the smug permanence of the Buyar superiority in the world to come. Yet Pipo felt tempted. After all, what else awaits us here on Jijo? Enslavement by the Joffer? Or the refuge of blessed dimness that the sages promise if we follow the so called path of redemption? Doesn't this offer a miraculous way out of choosing between those two unpalatable destinies? She concentrated hard to sequester her misgivings, focusing instead on the advantages of the Boyar plan. And there were plenty, such as living in a cosmos where hidden technology made up for nature's mistakes. After all, wasn't it cruel of the Creator to make a universe where so many fervent wishes were ignored? A universe where prayers were mostly answered, if at all, within the confines of the human heart? Might the Buyar plan rectify this oversight for billions and trillions, for all the inhabitants of a galaxy spinning civilization? Generosity on such a scale was hard to fathom. She compared this ambitious goal with the culture waiting for the streaker survivors, should they ever make it back home to the other four galaxies, where a myriad competitive fractious races bickered endlessly. Over reliant on an ancient library of unloving technologies, they seldom sought innovation or novelty. Above all, the desires of individual beings nearly always subsumed before the driving needs of nation, race, clan, and philosophy. Again, the Boyar vision looked favorable compared to the status quo. A small part of her demanded, Are these our only choices? What if we could come up with alternatives that go beyond simple minded? She squashed the question fiercely, packing it off to far recesses of her mind. I would love to learn more, she told the Grey Wizard. But what about my comrades, the other dolphins who now live on Jijo? Won't you need them too? In order to have a genetically viable colony, Yes, the spokesman agreed. If you agree to join us, we will ask you first to go and persuade others to come. Just out of curiosity, what would happen if I refused? The sorcerer shrugged. Your life will resume much as it would have if you never found us. We will erase all conscious memory of this visit and you will be sent home. Later, when we have had a chance to refine our message, emissaries will come to visit your pod of dolphins. But, as far as you know, you will hear the proposal as if for the first time. I see. And again, those who refuse will be memory wiped. And again, each time you return, kind of gives you an advantage in proselytizing, doesn't it? Perhaps. Still, no one is compelled to join against their will. The little human smiled. So, what is your answer? Will you help convey our message to your peers? We sense that you understand and sympathize with the better world we aim toward. Will you help enrich the great stew of races with the wondrous dolphin flavors? Pipo nodded. 
I will carry your vision to the others. Excellent. In fact, you can start without even leaving this pool, for I can now inform you that a pair of your compatriots already reside aboard one of our nearby vessels, and those two seem to be having trouble appreciating the wondrous life we offer. Not Zaki and Mopole. Pippa pushed back with her ventral fins, clicking nervously. She wanted nothing further to do with them. No, no, the magician assured. Please, wait calmly, while we open a channel between ships, and all will become clear. Ticket. Hello, Pippo, he said to the wavering image in front of him. I'm glad you look well. We were all worried sick about you, but I figured when we saw Zaki and Mopal you must be nearby. The hollow showed a sleek female dolphin looking exquisite but tired in a jungle-shrouded pool beside a miniature castle. Tiquette could tell a lot about the style of experiment aboard her particular vessel just by observing the crowd of natives gathered by the shore. Some of them were dressed as armored knights riding upon rearing steeds while gaily attired peasants doffed their caps to passing lords and ladies. It was a far different approach than the crystal fruits that hung throughout this vessel, semi-transparent receptacles where individuals lived permanently immersed in virtual realities. And yet, the basic principle was similar. Hi, Tiquette, Pippo answered. Is that Chassis with you? You both doing all right? Well enough, I guess, though I feel like the victim of some stupid fraternity practical. Isn't it exciting? Pippo interrupted, cutting off what Tiquette had been about to say. Across all the ages, visionaries have come up with countless utopian schemes, but this one could actually w- w- work. Tiquette stared back at her, unable to believe he was hearing this. Oh, yeah, he demanded. What about free will? The boyar will provide whatever your will desires. Then how about truth? There are many truths, Tiquette. Countless vivid subjective interpretations will thrive in a future filled with staggering diversity. Subjective, exactly. That's an ancient and d- despicable perversion of the word truth, and you know it. Diversity is wonderful, all right. There may indeed be many cultures, many art forms, even many styles of wisdom. But truth should be about finding out what's really real, what's repeatable and verifiable, whether it suits your fancy or not. <laughs> Pippo sputtered a derisive raspberry. Where's the fun in that? Life isn't just about having fun or getting whatever you want. Tiquette felt his guts roil, forcing sour bile up his esophagus. Pippo, there's such a thing as growing up, finding out how the world really works, despite the way you think things ought to be. Objectivity means I accept that the universe doesn't revolve around me. In other words, a life of limitations. That we overcome with knowledge, with new tools and skills. Tools made of dead matter, designed by committees, mass-produced, and sold on shop counters. Yes. Committees, teams, organizations, and enterprises 
all of them made up of individuals who have to struggle every day with their egos in order to cooperate with others, making countless compromises along the way. It ain't how things happen in a child's fantasy. It's not what we yearn for in our secret hearts, Peepo. I know that. But it's how adults get things done. Anyway, what's wrong with buying miracles off a shop counter so we take for granted wonders that our ancestors would have given their tail fins for? Isn't that what they'd have wanted for us? You'd prefer a world where the best of everything is kept reserved for wizards and kings? Tiquet felt a sharp jab in his side. The pain made him whirl, still bitterly angry, still flummoxed with indignation. What is it? He demanded sharply of Chasis, even though the little female could not answer. She backed away from his bulk and rancor, taking a snout-down submissive posture, but from her brow came a brief burst of caustic primal. Idiot! 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 Idiots keep talking human talk-talk while the sea tries to teach. Tiquet blinked. Her phrasings were sophisticated, almost lucid. In fact, it was a lot like a simple trinary chiding poem that a dolphin mother might use with her infant. Through an act of hard self-control, he forced himself to consider... While the sea tries to teach. It was a common dolphin turn of phrase, implying that one should listen below the surface to meanings that lay hidden. He whirled back to examine the hologram, wishing it had not been designed by beings who relied so much on sight and ignored the subtleties of sound transmission. Think about it, Tiquette, Peepo went on, as if their conversation had not been interrupted. Back home, we dolphins are the youngest client race of an impoverished, despised clan in danger of being conquered or rendered extinct at any moment. Yet now, we're being offered a position at the top of a new pantheon just below the Buyar themselves. What's more, we'd be good at this. Think about how dolphin senses might extend the range of possible magics. Our sound-based dreams and imagery our curiosity and reckless sense of adventure. And that just begins to hint at the possibilities when we finally come into our own. Tiquette concentrated on sifting the background, the varied pulses, whines, and clicks that melted into the ambiance whenever any neo-dolphin spoke. At first, it seemed Pipo was emitting just the usual mix of nervous sonar and blowhole flutters. Then he picked out a single floating phrase, an ancient primal, that interleaved itself amidst the earnest logic of sapient speech. Sleep on it, sleep on it, sleep on it, sleep on it. At first, the hidden message confused him. It seemed to support the rest of her argument. So then why make it secret? Then another meaning occurred to him, Something that even the puissant Buyar might not have thought of. Pipo. Her departure from the habitat was more gay and colorful than her arrival. Dragons flew by overhead, belching gusts of heat that were much friendlier than before. 
Crowds of boats ranging from canoes to bejeweled galleys pulled by sweating oarsmen accompanied Pipo from one pool to the next. Ashore, local wizards performed magnificent spectacles in her honor, to the odd wonder of gazing onlookers, while Pipo swam gently past amid formations of fish whose scales glittered unnaturally bright. With six races mixing in a wild variety of cultural styles, each village seemed to celebrate its own uniqueness in a profusion of architectural styles. The general attitude seemed both proud and fiercely competitive, but today all feuds, quests, and noble campaigns had been put aside in order to see her off. See how eagerly we anticipate the success of your mission, the gray magician commented as they reached the final chamber. In a starship, this space would be set aside for an airlock, chilly and metallic. But here, the breath of a living organism sighed all around them as the gray maw opened, letting both wind and sunshine come suddenly pouring through. Nice of them to surface like this, "'sparing me the discomfort of a long climb out of the abyss. "'Tell the other dolphins what joy awaits them,' "'the little mage shouted after Pipo "'as she drifted past the open jaws into the light. "'Tell them about the vividness and adventure. "'Soon days of experimentation will be over, "'and all of this will be full-sized "'with a universe lying before us.' She pumped her flukes in order to rear up, looking back at the small gray figure in a star-spangled gown who smiled as his arms spread wide, causing swarms of obedient bright creatures to hover above his head, converging to form a living halo. "'I will tell them,' she assured. Then Pipo whirled and plunged into the cool sea, setting off toward a morning rendezvous. Tiquette he came fully conscious again, only to discover with mild surprise that he was already swimming fast, leaping and diving through the ocean's choppy swells, propelled by powerful rhythmic fluke strokes. Under other circumstances, it might have been disorienting to wake up in full motion, except that a pair of dolphins flanked Tiquette, one on each side, keeping perfect synchrony with his every arch and leap and thrust. That made it instinctively easy to literally swim in his sleep. How long has this been going on? He wasn't entirely sure. It felt like perhaps an hour or two, perhaps longer. Behind him, Tiquette heard the low thrum of a sea sled's engine cruising on low power as it followed the three of them on autopilot. Why aren't we using the sled? He wondered. Three could fit in a pinch, and that way they could get back to Mackinney quicker to report that... Stale air exchanged quickly for fresh as he breached, performing each move with flawless precision even as his mind roiled with unpleasant confusion. To report that Mopal and Zaki are dead, we found Pipo safe and well wandering the open ocean. As for the machine noises we were sent to investigate... Tiquette felt strangely certain there was a story behind all that. A story that Pipo would explain later when she felt the time was right. Something wonderful, he recited, without quite knowing why. A flux of eagerness seemed to surge out of nowhere, 
priming Taquette to be receptive when she finally told everyone in the pod about the good news. He could not tell why, but Taquette felt certain that more than just the sled was following behind them. Welcome back to the living, Pipo greeted in crisp underwater Anglic after their next breaching. Thanks, I seem to be a bit muddled right now. Well, that's not too surprising. You've been half asleep for a long time. In fact, one might say you half slept through something really important. Something about her words flared like a glowing spark within him, a triggered release that jarred to Ket's smooth pace through the water. He re-entered the water at a wrong angle, smacking his snout painfully. It took a brief struggle to get back in place between the two females, sharing the group's laminar rhythm. I slept. I slept on it. Or rather, half of him had done so. It slowly dawned on him why that was significant. There aren't many water-dwellers in the civilization of five galaxies, he mused, reaching for threads that had lain covered under blankets of repose. I guess the Buyar never figured. A shiver of brief pain lanced from right to left inside his skull, as if a part of him that had been numb just came to life. The Buyar. Memories flowed back unevenly at their own pace. They never figured on a race of swimmers discovering their experiments. Hidden for so long under Jijo's ocean waves, they had no time to study us, to prepare before the encounter. And they especially never took into account the way a cetacean's brain works. An air-breathing creature who lives in the sea has special problems. Even after millions of years evolving for a wet realm, dolphins still faced a never-ending danger of drowning. Hence, sleep was no simple matter. One way they solved the problem was to sleep one brain hemisphere at a time. Like human beings, dolphins had complex internal lives, made up of many temporary or persistent subselves that must somehow reconcile under an overall persona. But this union was made even more problematic when human genetic meddlers helped turn fallow dolphins into a new sapient race. All sorts of quirks and problems lay rooted in the hemispheric divide. Sometimes information stored in one side was frustratingly hard to get at from the other. And sometimes that proved advantageous. The side that knew about the Buyar, the one that had slept while amnesia was imposed on the rest, had much less language ability than the other half of Tiquette's brain. Because of this, only a few concepts could be expressed in words at first— Instead, Tiquette had to replay visual and sonic images, reinterpreting and extrapolating them, holding a complex conversation of enquiry between two sides of his whole self. It gave him a deeper appreciation for the problems, and potential, of people like Chassis. I've been an unsympathetic bastard, he realized. Some of this thought emerged in his sonar echoes as an unspoken apology. Chassis brushed against him the next time their bodies flew through the air and her touch carried easy forgiveness. So, Pipo commented when he had taken some more time to settle his thoughts, is it agreed what we'll tell Mackinnie? Tiquette summed up his determination. We'll tell everything, and then some. 
Chassis concurred. Tell them, tell them, Orca tricksters promise fancy treats, but take away freedom. Tiquette chortled. There was a lot of trinary elegance in the little female's primal burst, a transition from animal-like emotive squawks toward the kind of expressiveness she used to be so good at, back when she was an eager researcher and poet, before three years of hell aboard Streaker hammered her down. Now a corner seemed to be turned. Perhaps it was only a matter of time till this crewmate returned to full sapiency, and all the troubles that would accompany that joy. Well, Pipo demurred. By one way of looking at things, the boyar seemed to be offering us more freedom. Our descendants would experience a wider range of personal choices. More power to achieve their wishes. More dreams would come true. As fantasies and escapism, Tiquette dismissed, the boyar would turn everybody into egotists. Solipsists. In the real world, you have to grow up eventually and learn to negotiate with others, be part of a culture, form teams and partnerships. Ifni, what does it take to have a good marriage? Lots of hard work and compromises leading to something better and more complicated than either person could have imagined. Pipo let out a short whistle of surprise. Why, to Ket, in your own prudish, tight-vented way, I do believe you're a romantic. Chasis shared Pipo's gentle, teasing laughter, so that it penetrated him in stereo from both sides. A human might have blushed, but dolphins can barely conceal their emotions from each other and seldom try. Seriously, he went on, "I'll fight the Buyar because they would keep us in a playpen for eons to come, denying us the right to mature and learn for ourselves how the universe ticks." Magic may be more romantic than science, but science is honest, and it works. What about you, Pipo? What's your reason? There was a long pause, then she answered with astonishing vehemence, "I can't stand all that kings and wizards dreck. Should somebody rule because his father was a pompous royal? Should all the birds and beasts and fish obey you just because you know some secret words that you won't share with others, on account of the fact that you've got a loud voice and your egotistic will is bigger than others? I seem to recall we fought free of such idiotic notions ages ago on Earth, or at least humans did. They never would have helped us dolphins get to the stars if they hadn't broken out of those sick thought patterns first. You want to know why I'll fight them, Tiquette? Because Mopole and Zacky will be right at home down there, one of them dreaming he's Superman, and the other one getting to be king of the sea. The three dolphins swam on, keeping pace in silence, while Tiquette pondered what their decision meant. In all likelihood, resistance was going to be futile. After all, the Buyar were overwhelmingly powerful and had been preparing for half a million years. Also. The incentive they were offering would make all prior temptations pale in comparison. Among the six races ashore, and the small colony of dolphins, many would leap to accept and help make the new world of magical wonder compulsory. We've never had an enemy like this before, he realized, one that takes advantage of our greatest weakness by offering to make all our dreams come true. Of course, there was one possibility they hadn't discussed. 
that they were only seeing the surface layers of a much more complicated scheme, perhaps some long and desperately unfunny practical joke. It doesn't matter, Tiket thought. We have to fight this anyway, or we'll never grow strong and wise enough to get the joke, and we'll certainly never be able to pay the Buyar back in kind, not if they control all the hidden levers in Oz. For a while, their journey fell into a grim mood of hopelessness. No one spoke, but sonar clicks from all three of them combined and diffused ahead. Returning echoes seemed to convey the sea's verdict on their predicament. No chance, but good luck anyway. Finally, little Chasis broke their brooding silence. After arduously spending the last hour composing her own trinary philosophy glyph, in one way, it was an announcement that she felt ready to return to the struggles of sapiency. At the same time, the glyph also expressed her manifesto. For it turned out that she had a different reason for choosing to fight the Boyar, one that Tiket and Pipo had not expressed, though it resonated deep within. Both the hazy mists of dreaming and the stark clear shine of daylight offer treasure to the seekers and a trove of valued insights. One gives open, honest knowledge and the skill to achieve wonders, but the other, just as needed, fills the soul and sets hearts astir. What need, then, for Urzat's magic or for contrived Disney marvels? God and Ifni made a cosmos filled with wonders. Let's go live it! Pipo sighed appreciatively. I couldn't have said it better. Screw the big old frogs. We'll make magic of our own. They were tired, and the sun was dropping well behind them by the time they caught sight of shore and heard other dolphins chattering in the distance. Still, all three of them picked up the pace, pushing ahead through Jijo's silky waters. Despite all the evidence of their logic and their senses, the day still felt like morning. <laughs> There you go. Fantastic. David, thank you so much for that. I hope everyone enjoyed this big serial. We have another one coming shortly. We have quite a few, to be quite honest, so do look out for them in the future. And that is Starship Sofa. Show 59. Put to bed. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you raise your glass too, Edgar Allan Poe, next week. And say happy birthday, the old guy. Don't forget, if you want to help Keep the Starship Sofa flying high. Consider going over to the monthly donations. Drop Just drop a normal donation or sign up for the £2.50 a month where you get the Sanatorium private feed. And once again, just want to say a big thank you to Amy H. Sturgis for taking over the show last week. Look out for Mr. Fred Heimbaugh, who's taking over the controls. I hope Amy's left it nice and clean for Fred on Saturday when he does his little interview. So until then, I would just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Story Sofa. Of that
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs> 